You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. In this market, I suspect because of the proliferation of uh, social media and because of uh, this generation of investors being A, speculatively inclined, and B, inclined to get their uh, information more democratically from social media, the hyper juniors moved uh, much, much, much earlier than they moved in past markets. We've seen an orgy of financings in the last 90 days, many of them at absolutely ridiculous valuations uh, relative to what the projects and the management teams were worth. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. Thank you for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Trilogy Metals. Trilogy is a copper-dominant polymetallic developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. Recently, Trilogy received a positive record of decision by the Bureau of Land Management for an access road. This is going to open up the entire Ambler Mining District and its mineral endowment for economic extraction. So this was a huge catalyst for the company. And Trilogy also put out on one of their projects a very positive feasibility study which demonstrated copper production at only 97 cents US per pound when copper has been trading between 250 and $3 per pound. So that's a quite a phenomenal all-in sustaining cost for copper production. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com and you can find it under the ticker symbol TMQ in Toronto or New York. Well, my guest today is Rick Rule of Sprott U.S. Holdings. He is the president and CEO. He needs no introduction. If you're at all interested in the precious metals or natural resource sector, you've heard Rick before. Rick joins me from his new home. So, Rick, uh, welcome to the show again, and I guess welcome to your new home, right? Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, and that's a that's a welcome uh, segue. Should um, should this uh, audio quality be? Uh, a bit compromised because of ongoing construction or moving, please forgive me and please note it's not Bill's fault, it's mine. Uh, <laughs> moving in, Just moving into a house means literally uh, 24 or 36 hours, so it's pandemonium here. <laughs> yes, and I know what it's like to move, unpacking, packing, trying to prepare your next meal, so I appreciate you sitting down with me for this half an hour amidst the craziness of moving. And Rick, as you know, for gold and gold stock investors, the big news that got everybody excited was, of course, Warren Buffett taking a 21 million uh, share position in Barrick, which is about a half a billion dollars, which is a lot to me, but not a lot to him. And we know that he pursues expected free cash flow relative to the enterprise value of the company he invests in. So looking at Barrick now, the financial sheet is strong. But I'm wondering, do you think he's still... Uh, gold price agnostic, or could this be speaking to his expectation that the gold price could rise in the future also? I don't think it does speak to any affection that he might have for gold, because I still believe that he thinks gold is a pet rock. Uh, as you point out, uh, this bet for Mr. Buffett uh, isn't even a rounding error. And my suspicion is that the purchase wasn't made by Buffett, but rather by one of the portfolio managers who operates under him. But it's useful uh, in terms of the gold investment narrative uh, for two related reasons. The first is, as you point out, and I think it's the most important, uh, that despite the fact that he has disdain for the product that Barrick makes, uh, he considers the company cheap. 
meaning that its enterprise value relative to the free cash it's likely to deliver uh, is attractive to him compared to his other investments. He always benchmarks new investments against old. So what he's trying to say is that he thought a better use of $500 million was buying some Barrick as opposed to, as an example, buying more Coca-Cola or more Apple for that matter. And I think that's extremely important. I don't think that he was passing judgment on the product. In fact, I think he penalized his investment decision because of his view of the product. But what he said was, from an operating perspective, this business is cheap. That's very important. He did, however, in several recent interviews, say things that are useful to the gold thesis. He said that he had never seen a circumstance, and I'm paraphrasing him, where uh, the common perception uh, and the interference in markets by government was more important than the markets itself. And he also described na negative interest rates as an unnatural phenomenon. Unnatural to the extent that uh, his float, which he has always rightly treasured, for those readers that you have that are not versed in insurance, float is the money received in uh, insurance uh, premium income before it's paid out in policies. Uh, what Buffett points out is that in a positive interest rate environment, the float is an absolutely wonderful asset. In a negative interest rate environment, if you're a bond investor, it can in fact be a liability. And so what Buffett is basically saying is that the yield on bonds, in particular U.S. Treasuries, has gone real negative, and he expects it to continue. He's being forced into equities. And that circumstance, the fact that, that uh, gold's real competitor, uh, which is U.S. Treasuries, uh, have become uh, negative, it can only be good for gold, irrespective of Mr. Buffett's character, uh, characterization of the metal as, quote, a pet rock. And he has not invested directly in this pet rock that we know of. And Buffett has also said, don't bet against America, yet he has sold many U.S. banking stocks, I understand, in that, that second quarter as well. Do you have any commentary to add on that? I think he enjoyed a very good run in the banking stocks. He had the courage to come into the banking sector very aggressively in the post-2008 circumstance when the whole world bet against the big U.S. banks. And he made an absolute fortune. Uh, my suspicion is that he sees uh, the whole bond business, and banks uh, are merely private bond portfolios, really self-constructed bond portfolios, beginning to be challenged because the cost of capital can't fall too much further, which is to say interest rates can't go too much lower or they go negative. So he comes into a circumstance where they're challenged. A bigger challenge, and I don't know if Mr. Buffett is passing an opinion on this, a, a bigger challenge would come to the banks if we had another liquidity squeeze. And if in that liquidity squeeze, asset prices, which is to say collateral values fell. I'm not suggesting that that's something that he is saying that's going to occur. But the biggest challenge that I would see the U.S. banking industry face would be, as an example, a revaluation of commercial real estate as a consequence of higher interest rates or as a consequence of uh, economic dislocation, 
caused by economic unwinding or the COVID-19 virus. I'm not saying that's what he is saying. Certainly for myself, I have so little confidence in the continuation of, in particular, commercial real estate uh, asset pricing that I don't have the courage myself to own the big banks. Regarding the junior gold stocks, for the speculators listening to us, if they're looking to initiate a position in a specific junior that they've identified as high quality, yet they're asking themselves, you know, where's the bottom of the current pullback in gold? Is it 1750, 1800, or 1925? Do you think it would be more wise for the speculator to focus more on the individual fundamentals and or catalysts of the the particular junior rather than looking at the macro picture of the gold price right now for an entry point? I think that investors need to invest, first of all, in their own psychology. Uh, And they need to teach themselves something about the market that they inhabit. Um, a, A study of prior gold bull markets teaches you that cyclical declines uh, of 15 to 20% are common in a secular bull market. And if you don't have the financial and uh, psychological stamina to endure fairly frequent 15 to 20% declines, you shouldn't be in the junior space. Uh, Having come off of that, I think you need to study prior bull markets. And a wonderful way to do that, which we'll refer to, is the 50-year Barron's Gold Mining Stock Index, which is a wonderful visual of the anatomy both of recoveries from oversold bottoms and from bull markets, uh, so that you learn something about the order of magnitude of these recoveries and which types of stocks outperform during certain periods in the recovery. Uh, When you are armed with that, uh, a sense of where the market is going uh, and a sense of what could cause you to sell from a fundamental rather than a psychological point of view, uh, once that is established, After that, securities analysis is absolutely everything. Once you decide to be in the sector, if you've prepared yourself uh, to accommodate yourself to 15 to 20 percent intermediate price declines, everything comes down to securities analysis. Uh, When you're looking for new companies, I was thinking as I prepared for this interview how I spoke with you two years ago at the Sprott Natural Resource Symposium. And you said at that time, the next two years, you were going to be looking to play the M&A game, mergers and acquisitions. And I saw in the news this week that Barrick Gold has met its $1.5 billion disposal target that it set out in 2018. But they could be disposing of more assets. Is is playing the M&A game at this point in the gold cycle still something that you're looking to engage in? Oh, yeah. I mean, it has treated us at Sprott so well. Uh, Our our specialized M&A product is, of course, run by my colleague and friend, John Hathaway. Uh, And that product has performed exceptionally well. It's largely an institutional product. But all of the intellectual capital of the Sprout organization has gone into that product, and we've profited uh, enormously from the M&A game. And my suspicion is that we've got at least a couple more years to go. It's important to note that the planners at Barrick, although they had a billion and a half dollar disposition target, uh, have two other things at play, too. I don't think any of them were thinking that this early on we'd have a $2,000 gold price so the free cash flow that Barrick is enjoying uh, has improved its, bar- its balance sheet to a greater degree than the dispositions have. 
Um, and also, uh, Barrick is run by an unusually intelligent and unusually disciplined investor uh, in the form of Mark Bristow, to the extent that Mark can exit uh, a couple of their second tier assets so that he can focus on uh, what he wants to focus on which is tier one assets, means that Barrick, as an example, like the, le the rest of the industry, will be realizing premium prices for assets which no longer can fit into the portfolio, but will also begin to be able to bid aggressively for assets that do fit into the portfolio. Barrick will not be the only one involved in this. A lot of people will be involved in it. And from an investor's point of view, there are several ways to play it. Uh, one thing would be to realize that the larger, multi-asset, more liquid, better capitalized companies sell at higher share prices. In other words, they have a lower cost of capital. And they will be seeking to use that, that lower cost of capital to buy high-quality single-asset companies, which have a higher cost of capital. So understanding which assets uh, are strategic to the most likely buyers, which is to say the very large, very liquid multi-asset companies is one way to play. A different way to play is to look at the new rationality in the business. Look at the fact that Endeavor and Semifo combined in a horizontal merger, which simply uh, lowers their cost of capital as a consequence of scope and scale while lowering the general and administrative charge relative to assets under management. So look to strategically for horizontal rather than vertical mergers. Finally, look to teams of people who have been successful in M&A before. I'm thinking as an example of our mutual friend, Ross Beatty. Look for teams who can buy assets which will be cast off by bigger companies where those assets haven't enjoyed the love, care, and attention in a larger portfolio uh, that they would enjoy uh, with you know, being run by a new team. I'm thinking as an example of K92, which of course acquired a cast-off Barrick asset and enjoyed spectacular success because they were able to focus on an asset that was relevant to them but could not have amortized Barrick's carpet costs. So there's a lot of ways to play this M&A bill. And it's going to be a real, real important theme for two more years at least. That's the great advice, Rick. And I want to post to you a question that I had a listener send me. They said, Bill, when I'm looking at an advanced stage development project and I'm trying to come up with some valuation to determine how high the share price could go, what price per gold ounce in the ground do you think I should be using in this cycle? Can you share any insights here? I don't think the gold price per ounce in the ground is a rational metric. Um, it's something that the market pays attention to, but it's not something that acquirers pay attention to unless they're trying to scam the market. The truth is that the uh, market capitalization relative to in situ value is irrelevant because it doesn't take into account the uh, capital cost to put that ounce in production. It doesn't take into account whether that ounce is produced a year from now or 20 years from now. In other words, it doesn't take into a time, account time value of money. Uh, nor does it take into account the cost to produce the ounce, which is to say the margin. It's a metric that everybody likes because you can react to it. You don't need to think. It's easy. Uh, and given the fact that it's easy, it, it is a metric that matters some to traders. But it doesn't matter to real acquirers at all. What matters to real acquirers 
is how much net present value you get relative to every dollar expended. So if you're a trader buying optionality, which is to say buying a lot of, pardon my French, but shitty ounces at a low price per ounce can make you a lot of money. But that isn't the way uh, investors or acquirers feel. A lot of those low quality ounces in the ground we see in these bulk tonnage, high capex gold projects. Do you think a lot of these will make positive production decisions in this cycle or is it still 50 years out if then? No, I do. I, I think that we'll see a lot of mistakes made this cycle. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, the truth is that the cost of capital is at historic lows. And this is a this is a capital intensive business. The most important input in the mining business uh, is in fact capital, and the cost of capital is at historic lows, negative in a real sense. Uh, at the same time, that the product price uh, is in very good shape, and at least from my perspective, uh, very probably going higher and perhaps substantially higher. What that means is that companies that are able to finance very cheaply the huge capital expenditures necessary to put big projects in production, particularly where they are able to hedge the resultant production out three or four or five years uh, and through the arbitrage between cost of capital and return on capital employed by the hedge, uh, pay off that capital cost. Uh, I think that uh, this odd set of circumstances will allow projects that probably shouldn't be built be built. And I think that'll be one of the surprises this cycle. I think that you will see the return of the four and five and six billion dollar capital cost projects as a consequence between the arbitrage with the cost of capital and the gold price that one can lock in today in hedging markets. One headline that I was surprised to see about a month ago or so came from Northern Dynasty, where they received their final environmental impact statement. And I understand the the pro-mining stance of the Trump administration, but the Biden campaign has come out and said, basically, if we take the reins of power again, this thing's getting shut down. How should a speculator look at a situation like this, where you have the political wind saying, we want to shut this thing down? Uh, My own personal belief is that you should take uh, politicians at their word when their word is negative. (laughs) Uh, I'm not a political analyst, particularly, but I will say that my view of political risk is very different than many of your listeners. I've learned that countries treat me well when they have no second choice, when they need me, Uh, which is to say that countries where mining is important uh, tend to be more mining friendly than countries that where, where mining is not important. Uh, mining in the United States probably generates uh, less EBIT than golf. Uh, it's an irrelevancy, and I wouldn't expect mining to be treated well in the United States, really under any administration. That isn't to say that there aren't great mineral deposits or great mines to be built in the United States, but I wouldn't look for the political constituent in the United States to do me any favors in the mining business. Whereas in other jurisdictions, one could expect the voters and as a consequence, the politicians to be more friendly to me simply because they have no choice. Rick, I study what you say and 
Regarding what you've shared about gold market topping indicators, I wrote some notes here. You've said that one indicator that you would look to would be positive real interest rates, such as like bonds or treasuries, 2.5% above CPI. And correct me if I'm wrong. And the second one would be gold or gold stock market saturation above about 2.5% of total investable assets. Now, when I heard that, I was thinking to myself, 2.5 might be low just because of my personal expectations of this bull market and everything that's going on economically. I had more 5% in mind, but do you think 5% would be a little too ambitious for my expectations? Bill, you need to take everything in context. Uh, if gold ownership in the United States, if, if let's go back and examine what I said before I qualify it. And by the way, you got it pretty close to right. Um, real interest rates on the U S 10 year treasury, uh, above 200, 250 basis points would be bullish for the dollar and bullish for treasuries. And as a consequence, uh, bearish for gold. I don't see that occurring anytime soon. But I have always wanted to set quantitative uh, markers so that I could re-examine my premise because it's important to understand what could or should cause you to sell so that you don't get so completely intoxicated with your own narrative that you forget to sell. So a positive real interest rate on the U.S. 10-year treasury is important to me. The second is the level of gold ownership. Uh, it is my understanding that precious metals and precious metals related investments comprise less than one half of 1% of all savings and investment assets in the United States. The 30 year mean is between one and a half and 2%. So uh, if the market share of precious metals and precious metals related assets returns to the 30 year mean, I need to reexamine my premise. If they return to the 30-year mean in a circumstance where real interest rates are still 100 basis points or more negative, uh, I will be completely comfortable that gold can continue to increase its market share. Uh, if, by contrast, we're in a situation where uh, the market share of precious metals and precious metals-related uh, assets has returned to its three-decade mean, and we have a circumstance that's less bullish for precious metals as a consequence of a positive yield on the U.S. 10-year treasury, I would become much more cautious. You need to take all these into account. My own particular belief is that most of the voters uh, and most of the political class uh, favor continual debasement of the currency and favor continually artificially low interest rates. So my suspicion is to the extent that they can control the markets, they will do so. And as a consequence of that, inadvertently, they are blowing lots of wind into the sales of gold and precious metals related securities. But I have cautioned you many times in the past that I'm actually a credit analyst and I'm not an economist, so I don't put too much stock in my own words. <laughs> and I don't try to pin you down on future forecasts. But one possibility that you did share with me in an interview at PDAC this year, which would have been about five, five and a half months ago, was that the pandemic that we've gone through in these last few months and the government's response to the pandemic 
could push back the copper and industrial metals bull market back a couple years or a few years to where we have a gold bull, bull market, precious metals bull market, followed by an industrial commodities bull market. Is that still your expectation about five months after you told me that initially? Certainly, that's my operating thesis. Uh, mercifully mercifully for, be, for me, I've been wrong. Um, I love the copper business. I've made lots and lots and lots of money in copper. And despite the fact that I think the copper price is going lower, uh, I have been uh, adding, because I can't help myself, high-quality copper deposits. And the copper price keeps going up, despite my thoughts that it's going to go lower. So mercifully for myself, I've been wrong. My thesis continues to be that unwinding the recovery that we enjoyed in the 2009 to 2019 period uh, a recovery which I believe was due more to fiscal stimulus than it was to wealth creation, that is to say efficiency, free trade, things like that. The combination of the unwinding of that recovery and the tremendous shock done to the world economy by COVID-19 needs to work itself through the global economy. I hope I'm wrong. Working itself through the global economy means that we have a recession or maybe even something worse. Uh, my suspicion is that we will have two or three or four years of economic weakness. And if we have uh, all of that economic weakness, my suspicion is that demand for industrial materials will be less robust than many people believe it to be. Ironically, uh, I think that that weakness and, and the lack of capital investment and sustaining capital reinvestment means that the industry's ability to produce, which is to say that the supply side gets very, very constrained, setting up a rally uh, that I could see happening three years from now, four years from now, five years from now, that will will rival the rally that we enjoyed in the 2000 to 2006 time frame. When you, as you know, Bill, uh, when you balance supply and demand by reducing the ability to supply, when commodity prices begin to move up, the industry can't meet those market signals with increased production because it's capital intensive and extremely time intensive. And that means that you get rallies in commodity prices that defy logic. I heard a wise guy once say, a bear market is the author of a bull market. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's very true. I, I, I was the one who coined the phrase, I think. I was not the first one to make that observation. <laughs> well, you're good at um, coming up with proverbs or succinct things that we can remember to kind of encapsulate these ideas. And that's definitely a Rick Rulism that I've taken with me. And you uh, hosted many investors via a virtual conference recently, about a month ago. So I'm as I've asked you in the previous years that I've been interviewing you, uh, what were some of the key takeaways or what did Rick Rule learn at his own conference this year? Well, I learned a couple things. Uh, one thing I learned is something that you probably already knew, which is to say that the technology that exists today allows us to do these damn things. Uh, I, was, I was terrified, having been part of this conference in a physical format for 29 years, that we wouldn't be able to pull it off virtually. Uh, and we had over 100 people that said that they enjoyed the virtual version more 
than the physical version. <laughs> so the first thing that happened was you taught a very old dog, me, 67 years of age, some wonderful new tricks, or at least he aligned himself with people who had access to those trips. Uh, tricks, pardon me. But we, uh, I think we learned a lot this year. Uh, one thing we learned is that this bull market in materials is different than prior bull markets. In prior bull markets in precious metals, the precious metals equities have followed a different trajectory. The biggest and the best moved first, and then the best of the rest moved, and then the junior producers moved, and then the developers moved, and then the hyper juniors moved. In this market, I suspect because of the proliferation of uh, social media, and because of uh, this generation of inve investors being A, speculatively inclined, and B, inclined to get their uh, information more democratically from social media, the hyper juniors moved uh, much, much, much earlier than they moved in past markets. We've seen an orgy of financings in the last 90 days, many of them at absolutely ridiculous valuations. Uh, relative to what the projects and the management teams were worth. So we have a market that's really been a barbell market. In the first instance, the biggest and the best have put on extremely handsome moves in the last 12 months. Uh, while on the other hand, the other end of the spectrum, which is to say the hyper-speculative companies, the 5 million and 10 million uh, market cap companies, have suddenly become 80 or 90 million market cap companies while everything in the middle has languished. So what we've seen is that the anatomy of a bull market has changed as a consequence of uh, a changing nature of investment and speculation. And I suspect also as a consequence of uh, the new ways that younger people are getting access to information, which is to say peer to peer. And before you go, for my listeners that aren't aware of what you offer to review their portfolio, could you share about that, please? Yeah, I love doing that, by the way. And by the way, Bill, I really enjoy uh, meeting your subscribers. I've, I've gotten into many uh, long email chain conversations with your subscribers in response to questions that they've asked. Thank you. Uh, I, I give people the ability to access me by giving them an incentive. And that incentive is this. I personally will rank any of your listeners' portfolios, uh, what they need to do is go to a web link, which I think you'll post. Yes. Uh, SprottUSA.com front slash rankings. You will find a web form where you list your natural resource portfolios, names and symbols, please. And I will rank those companies one to 10, one being in my, from my point of view best, 10 being from my point of view worst. And I will comment on those companies individually where I think my comments have value. Note that you must be patient. This is an extremely popular offer and I get buried with requests. Uh, in addition to sending you uh, my rankings and opinions, which I hope are valuable, uh, I will also send a copy of the Barron's Gold Mining Index, which uh, is a 50-year index of the broadest based uh, gold equities index in the world. And although I'm not a technical analyst, it's a wonderful visual tool to understand the performance of prior bull markets, of prior bear markets, and of the prior recoveries from oversold bottoms and the prior declines from uh, overbought peaks 
it's wonderful to understand the uh, anatomy and performance of a market. And the this chart gives you a wonderful visualization tool to do that. Finally, uh, I'll send out a 100-year a commodity chart so that your listeners get a sense of just how cheap commodities are relative to other asset classes compared with their price performance over the last 100 years. Uh, I think this is a wonderful starter kit for people who are beginning to pay more serious attention both to their precious metals, but also to their broader natural resources and commodities portfolios. Excellent. If you haven't reached out to Rick to have him review your portfolio, I encourage you to do so. And please do give him at least a couple weeks. We usually get comments back saying, Rick hasn't reviewed my portfolio yet. Give him a couple weeks. They get thousands of people every week that ask them to review their portfolios. But uh, I know Rick will get back to you. So just give him a little patience when you do reach out. Rick, as always, I appreciate this half hour of your time today, and I hope the rest of the move into your new home goes well. Well, thank you, Bill, and I, I look forward to a cessation of this uh, COVID stuff so we can have an interview one-on-one -on -one followed by uh, perhaps libations at the bar. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly the mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.